Listener supported. WNYC Studios. A month ago, a California district attorney decided not to charge two Sacramento police officers in the shooting death of Stefan Clark, a 22-year-old father who was killed unarmed last year outside his grandmother's home. Hundreds came together to protest the police shooting of Stefan Clark, an unarmed black man shot 20 times by officers. He was found holding only a cell phone. What's his name? We all call for change, and we call for change right now. What do we want? Citizens were outraged at the non-prosecution, yes, but not shocked. California not only has one of the highest rates of police killings in the country, it has been notoriously secretive about its internal investigations. On January 1st, a blow was struck for transparency with the passage of Senate Bill 1421, which vastly increases access to such records, but the timing could have been better. The new law comes just as journalistic resources have been decimated by the collapsing media economy. Who has the staff anymore to rummage through endless thousands of documents? So now comes a relatively new journalistic approach, collaboration. 30-some news organizations across the state sharing the arduous task. It's called the California Reporting Project. Andy Gilbertson is an investigative reporter for the public station KPCC and co-host of the podcast Repeat, which traced a string of deputy police shootings in South Los Angeles. Annie, welcome to OTM. Happy to be here. The investigations till now were conducted by internal affairs, police investigating police, and police determining the narrative. Yeah, absolutely. Under previous California law, they could release video or information as they saw fit. And so you did see departments releasing video of, say, the Trader Joe's shooting that we had here in Los Angeles not too long ago, when the video clearly indicated that the suspect was armed and that it it was really in favor of the officers to put that narrative out. And then we see for other aspects of police shooting investigations, the mountains of evidence they collect on the scene by homicide investigators, they really had their discretion as to whether or not that information was ever made public. And so you did see information coming from one place. And it would take months, if not years, if there was a civil lawsuit filed to get any sort of different opinion on the facts of what happened. But now, Senate Bill 1421, It's sort of like the California drought, years of information trickle, giving way to a flood. But in today's world of depleted newsrooms, would any single news organization have been able to take advantage of this surge of documentation? If you think about what is collected in these homicide investigations, so the investigations into police use of force, we are talking about witness statements from canvassing neighborhoods. We're talking about statements by officers. We're talking about interviews with the officers involved, both by homicide detectives and by internal affairs investigators. We're talking about 
the nuance of bullet trajectories and fingerprints and all of those types of evidence. It's hundreds of pages of documents, and that's not even including the video and audio that is also available for these cases. This is information that we had never been able to get our hands on or were rarely able to get our hands on unless it came out in court. And so right away, we filed a flurry of Public Records Act requests. We were talking about hundreds, if not thousands of pages each. So it became very apparent that we needed to think wisely about using the power of many of the big newsrooms here in Southern California to really get at some of these questions. And so when KQED, the Bay Area public radio station, came to us and said, let's collaborate, it was a no-brainer for us. So now you have like 30 different organizations. How does that actually work? Are people still trying to squirrel away the best potential stories for themselves? We've been focused our newsroom on police shootings for the last three years. You know, I did the podcast repeat about an officer who shot at four people in seven months. There was a lot that I couldn't answer during the time I was reporting out that podcast because I had restricted access to police records and some of the things going on in there, those shootings. And so, of course, that was one of the first requests I put in. It was some of the first requests that I got back, thousands of pages of documents that I hadn't seen of an investigation that I had already spent about a year on. And I think there was general agreement that that's something that we are best positioned to continue reporting on from our newsroom, given our background of coverage. Same's true for the Los Angeles Times. Reporter there that I have deep respect for, Maya Lau, has been doing incredible work with regards to the Brady List at the Sheriff's Department and officers that have been accused of lying or having credibility issues and how that impacts our criminal justice system. And I'm not about to try to compete with her on those stories. In fact, we should be having her on our airwaves to give us updates on her reporting because then it serves our audience and their audience. What about the police agencies? What happens in LAPD stays in LAPD. Is there any evidence so far of slow walking or stonewalling or even obstruction? Just before the law went into effect, January 1st, we saw a coordinated effort by police unions throughout California to block access to records that were from incidents prior to January 1st. So their reasoning was is that those incidents happened under an old system of rules and old expectations of officers. And they said that that should govern how we look at those incidents now. And the media organizations, it was really one of our first collaborative efforts was to join hand in hand in court on opposing the unions on this and to say, you know what, the law has changed. This idea that it's not retroactive is a red herring. And so far, the media has been prevailing. I went to court recently and ultimately what the judge had said that one thing that stuck with me is expectations can upend with legislation, meaning that the officer's expectations of privacy may have been one thing in prior years. It's now different because of the legislature here in California. And so far, we've been seeing many courts rule in favor, although some of those cases are now on appeals. We may see it go all the way up to the Supreme Court of California. Given that blue wall of silence, the internal affairs person can try to get to the heart of it or help establish a defense since the law affords a lot of leeway to officers in in these moments. As you read these internal affairs interviews, do you see the investigators trying to establish a line of defense for the 
officers they're nominally investigating? When a police shooting happens in L.A. County, it's homicide investigators who get the first pass. And they go out, the district attorney's there, they interview the officers, oftentimes with a union lawyer present. And yeah, you do see that they are trying to establish the fear in that split-second decision to use force. Who is listed as the victim and who is listed as the suspect? So oftentimes it's the person who had the force used against them who's listed as the suspect. The crime, say, is burglary, carjacking, something like that. And the victim is the officer. They're running parallel investigations here. They're running an investigation trying to gather evidence that will ultimately be used to prosecute the person who had the force used against them in criminal court. That is if they live, right? So it is a dual investigation, and one wonders if they can adequately weigh those tensions to hold both the officer accountable to maybe question whether or not he's telling the truth and also preparing a criminal case against the person who was shot. We've seen case after case where unarmed black men and boys are shot to death by police, all captured on video, and yet court acquittals or no indictments at all. If police are given such impunity in the face of dramatic video evidence, will statistics or personnel files or internal affairs reports change the calculus? Well, I think that the law gives officers wide latitude for use of force, right? The truth is, is that you'd have to see, and there's a bill right now in California to make it so that instead of shooting when reasonable, you're shooting only when, or using force only when absolutely necessary. But still, that would only apply potentially to a small number of cases that district attorneys are willing to bring and that the facts of the case were gathered in such an appropriate way that they could then bring the case. So I think that there's a lot around some of the reforms of accountability outside the venue of whether or not officers are being criminally charged. The truth is, is that often officer police shootings and use of force The venue is not criminal court. It is either in civil court or it's internally in what was a black box system where leaders within the department look at the findings and decide whether or not that officer acted appropriately. We're just coming off a midterm election where California, pretty much from border to border, coast to coast, Uh, was demonized by conservative candidates as a bastion of hedonism and political correctness and tree-hugging. But what you are describing is definitely not a leftist utopia. When it comes to law enforcement and criminal justice policy, I mean, California has not been... On the vanguard, shall we say? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we are we are home to the three strikes law. We incarcerated many people for drug crimes for, for decades. It is only now that we're seeing the cognitive dissonance between what the people of California expect from their government and the actual rules that the government enforces change. When you and your colleagues have had a chance to comb through these documents. What kind of stories do you think are going to emerge? I'm interested in a lot of things. I'm interested in sort of these universal questions around how police police themselves, whether we are seeing justice 
matted out in a fair way when there's these internal investigations and internal decision making around whether or not an officer followed policy or crossed the line and how accountability works in policing here in California. I think that we've seen heated arguments on both sides, and there's not a very robust discourse on what could make it better. And I'm interested in contributing to that discourse. Finally, I want to ask you not about police culture, but about journalistic culture. It used to be, let's beat the LA Times, let's beat the Daily News, Sacramento Bee, KPBS, whatever. What is it like, all of a sudden, to be in a coalition of the willing? We still hold some healthy competition with the LA Times or with the OC Register. It's clear that this is public media-led because our spirit has so much been about what is the public service? What can we do to get the information our audience needs at the time they need it? And sometimes that's not with our own journalists, right? And I'm excited to see that culture enter more into for-profit media. Andy, thank you. You're welcome. Andy Gilbertson is an investigative reporter for KPCC and the co-founder of the California Reporting Project. That's it for this week's Podcast Extra. Tune in for the week's big show. It's something we have never tried before. Dancing! No, not dancing, but pretty cool. Listen for it. I'm Bob Garfield.